Good morning. Just listening to that song, I was thinking all week long, I constantly say to my granddaughter, say please, say please. But God doesn't demand that we say please. He just wants us to ask for Jesus. So it's just, it's really neat. Give me Jesus. Our scripture reading today is from Acts 4, verse 1 to 14. Peter and John before the council. So as they were speaking, that's Peter and John, to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Ananias, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which, was, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But being the man who was healing, healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Nicola, would you like to come in? I'd like to pray for you. Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that Nicola is here today to speak your words. Make her a channel of your peace, your understanding, the words that you would have our ears hear. Open our ears and our hearts to hear the message that you have through her today. In your precious name, Lord Jesus, amen. Lord, accept these humble words and bless those gathered here. Amen. So, good morning. Um, this is kind of terrifying. <laughs> and, and it might and maybe should be for you too. So, um, I, I figured that there's kind of, there's three ways this maybe goes. Um, my prayer is that that there are amongst us some small epiphanies this morning, that there is some small uh, remembrance or realization of what God is like and how he loves us and how he works. So that's my prayer, and that's option number one. Um, Possibility number two is that it's kind of mediocre. Um, And and that's okay because it's air-conditioned and some of you are enjoying free child care. Um, and, and then we can be really grateful for Todd and the really excellent work that he does. So that's possible. 
Um, and then the third option is catastrophe, and that gives us something to laugh about over lunch. So with that in mind and those three possibilities, we'll just kind of move forward. So can we make this screen thingy work? Uh-oh. Oh, technology. Yay, now I feel like Todd pressing buttons, pointing at things. How are we doing back there? Yeah. Oh, it's there for you. That's fun. Okay, just not for me. All right, cool. Okay, so last week Todd was talking about uh, the story in um, about how Paul goes for this very long walk uh, that's known as his third missionary journey. And it's a really, really long walk. Uh, he goes from Syria to Turkey and then eventually to Macedonia with his friends. It's about 1,200 kilometers, and most of it was on foot, except for the last little bit where they went across the Aegean. Have any of you watched the television show or know the television show, The Amazing Race? Put your hands up. I'm watching this with great interest because one of my colleagues is actually on the Canadian version right now. Um, but this involves teams of two people racing around the world, and they have to get on planes and get to various things and accomplish various tasks. And at the end of each episode, they get to what's known as a pit stop, where they get to rest for a bit. So a few years back in one of the shows, they introduced this terrible thing where they came to what they thought was a pit stop, and they raced, and they jumped, and they were told, you are the third team to arrive, but you're not done yet. You've got to keep on racing. And that's kind of what the third missionary journey feels like to me, that they get to one place, and they're told, you can't speak here. This isn't the place. And God says, keep on going. And they walk another 200 kilometers. I think there's a really epic journey here. And, you know, I think Netflix would be all over this. But the Bible's really low on detail. Uh, we don't find out whether Paul and his buddies, when told that this was not the place, sort of fall on the ground weeping in despair, or whether they just kind of walk on like Forrest Gump, or what they, what they do next. Um, because ultimately, the story isn't about Paul and his buddies. It's not about the journey. It's about God's mission and the thread of his work in the world. So we here at Sutherland are looking towards the future and making a big decision. Um, and all of us, you know, make these decisions. I teach high school, so, I, you know, my grade 12 students are thinking about what's next. And when we, we look to those, I think it's also important to look back and see where God was and where God is and, and what we know of him that we then take forward. In, at Sutherland, uh, you know, looking forward, this, this building is a legacy. It's not just a building. Um, there are people involved in this, and it's a representation of that. But the story is about God's work. Uh, it's not about us. And so if we can see where God has been with us in the past, then I think we can walk forward in faith, uh, no matter what, where we go next. So we're going to take a look at this passage from Acts, and we're going to talk a little bit about Moses and a couple of other things. But we'll start out maybe with a consideration of how we see the past. Oh, it worked. Cool. Um, that's fine. So we have this blessing from God who's timeless and, you know, beyond our comprehension, that, that we are anchored by him in time and in space. And we have these places that we remember, and we have these... Uh, these words that we, rem we remember, and we have this history uh, and a legacy that we go forward with. But as humans, we can see the past in some kind of different ways, right? We can look at, uh, you know, some people look back on the past as a time of terrible pain, and they carry some really horrible burdens from the past. 
and many would seek to excise that from their very being. And then there are people who look back on the past as sort of, you know, being this golden age, and they're a little bit like the kids who were told they couldn't go back to Narnia, that, uh, you know, that, that dream is over. And, and that's a hard burden, too, and hopefully, you know, we can sort of look on the past with some clarity uh, and, and carry it, but, but move forward. We also are really, really good about reconstructing the past. So we can look at past events, and we can see them through our perspectives. So, you know, have a chat with a family member about their perspective of, of a vacation you remember, especially if it was a road trip. I think those cause the most tension um, when you're all in the car together. Uh, you know, you might have had a very, very different experience from the people in the backseat. Um, we, uh, you know... As you know, we have three boys, Rick and I, and uh, one of them's here, so we won't talk about him. But um, we'll say that it was one of the others that uh, was heard to say a few years ago, uh, when in a little bit of trouble, that I didn't hit him. He hit my hand with his face. So we take these... We can reconstruct, and we come to history with our vested interests and our agendas. And we can do this in families to try and prove points about who we are. Uh, we do this uh, in churches. And I think maybe most dangerously, we do this in nations, that we try to sort of say that we are this, but never that. Um, I teach history to high school students, and uh, we look at the history of Canada, and I, I want them to know that this is a country to be proud of, that we have, uh, we've done some great stuff. Um, we... You know, we've been committed to, to diversity and multiculturalism. We have been a refuge uh, for people from Syria and before that from Cambodia and other places. Um, we've been welcoming. Um, we've protected the environment. We've done some, some great stuff. We also invented the zipper. Um, but, just so you know. But we've also inflicted terrible pain. Uh, we have a legacy of residential schools and our indigenous people. We incarcerated Japanese people and took away their, their, all their belongings during the Second World War. We've done some really awful stuff as a nation. So we have to look back with clarity that some of this stuff is, you know, is good and some of it's bad and, you know, it's all between. When we set about trying to prove ourselves to be something, some one thing, it gets dangerous. You may know that a couple of months ago the government of Poland passed a law that made it illegal to talk or teach about Polish perpetrators of the Holocaust. They want to remember the Holocaust, but they only want to remember the Polish people who were the victims of the Holocaust. Not those whose you know, numbers were few, but who did exist, who perpetrated it. So you have a version of history, and I have students from lots of places in the world uh, who tell versions, you know, who are, are taught versions of history that are pretty incomplete. The central challenge, of course, is that history is huge and, you know, you can't tell every story. So whose story do you tell? But I think for us, when we look in faith at history, at our past, whether it's personal or sort of more communal, that our job is to then trace God's sort of shining thread of his love and his grace and his mission through our past. Where was God? Well, he was with us. We know that much. What was he doing? That's a harder question to answer sometimes to look through. Um, 
I mentioned residential schools, and you're probably more aware of, of what's been, what has happened uh, in our past in our country as it's uh, come more to light, partly through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And as part of my work at school, I have read more than I wanted to uh, reports from survivors. So these were interviews that were done as part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission with children who were taken from their families and put into residential schools. And the, the abuses there are, are well known. Um, the, the stories, the survivor accounts, are harrowing. They're devastating. There's things I wish I hadn't read. Um, but the last question in the interview is always, was there anything good about your experience? And some people said no. And other people said, well, there was this one person who was, you know, brought me hope in the darkness. But there's quite a number of people who actually say, yeah, those people, whether they meant to or not, they gave me Jesus. They gave me my Jesus. And in the midst of all that darkness, all those horrible things inflicted in the name of Jesus, Jesus was still working to bring good, to bring healing. So we have to see his thread in the world. And then, of course, we bring our perspectives and our personalities. We're all different, and the Bible celebrates this. We have four different Gospels telling the accounts of Jesus' life. We have Luke. We've got the doctor, the physician, who sees all the details and adds in all the characters. And then we've got, you know, John the mystic, who tells half of it in metaphor. And, you know, when we look back to the Old Testament, we've got uh, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all talking about uh, escaping from Egypt and the time in the desert and God's promises and the law. Or we could look at Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, and even the Psalms, David's stories, Solomon, Samuel. But they're different perspectives. And, you know, that's God's bigger, uh, you know, his view of history is big and, and broad. And, you know, we can see that when Thomas, who you may be familiar with, was uh, in kindergarten, um, his rather distraught-looking teacher came out at the end of the day and said that there were bananas spread all over the cloakroom floor. And they had been squished all over the floor, and the kids were saying it was Thomas. So she and I went in, and the mess was really gross. And, and she and I were seeing the mess and the work to clean it up and the fact that we had to call the custodian, and we felt really bad, and waste of food. And Thomas was pretty quiet about the whole thing for a couple of weeks until he announced to me one day in the car that actually two bananas on a linoleum floor glide beautifully like a pair of skates. <laughs> so we bring our perspectives. So let's take a look at this story in Acts 4. So just a quick context. Um, Peter and John ha- and, and their friends, their companions, have gone to the temple uh, and they heal a guy. They heal a beggar. Uh, he was crippled, then he walks. And then they talk to the crowds about what's going on, and we'll go into that in a sec. And then, in the scripture that Norma read for us this morning, they're hauled before the Jewish uh, leaders to give an account of what's gone on. The Jewish leaders are quite concerned about the, the crowds that are gathering and, and what's happening. So, this is about two months after Jesus has been crucified and risen from the dead. It's less than two weeks after he ascended into heaven. 
Jerusalem is probably teeming with pilgrims because this is a a festival that was known as the Feast of Weeks uh, that we came to know as Pentecost, and we celebrate as Christians the events that happened at Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit. But it was in this context. It was really, really busy. And so you can imagine that within just two months of Jesus' dying, there's a lot of those rumors swirling around Jerusalem. Uh, there's lots of, you know, Jesus' name and, and these rumors, and did he come back from the dead, and, you know, what's been going on? And then you have the disciples who are starting to kind of get together and do stuff like healing. So this adds to the, the sort of swirl of information that's maybe going around here, not to mention a lot of interest. It says that in the from when they heal the beggar until the next day, 5,000 people come to faith in Jesus because of what they did. So there's a lot going on. So the the beggar himself, uh, we're told that he was about 40 years old and that he had been uh, crippled from birth, which meant that for the last almost four decades probably, he has been sitting outside of the temple whenever it's temple time. Someone's, I guess, bringing him there. And uh, he can't walk. So he would sit there with his hands stretched out because there was no other way to get money. And probably all those people who came to the temple would have been walking past him, and you know the the deal, right? Some of them would have walked past and looked straight ahead and pretended they didn't see him, and they didn't see his outstretched hand. And then others would have maybe felt that going into God's temple might be a good time to show a little charity, so they might have uh, given him some token. So when Peter and John... Uh, go into the temple, uh, he asks them for money, and they say, we don't have any. And for them, that was probably true. Um, and then they say, but we have something much, much better. And they heal him in Jesus' name. And the story goes that he, not only does he walk, he jumps. Um, he is, he's jumping up and down, and Luke, the physician who's writing Acts, tells us that uh, his ankles and his feet were fixed. His ankles and his feet were healed. So here we have this guy, and he, and he won't let go of, of Peter and John. He's so excited. Uh, I mean, amazing. So a lot of the people who walked into the temple that day would have been familiar with this guy. This wasn't just sort of, you know, someone who came in and pretended to be crippled and, hey, I'm fine. Uh, they genuinely knew that this guy had been crippled his entire life, and there was no arguing with the fact that he is now jumping up and down in front of them kind of a mind-blowing experience, kind of stunning. And when the crowd gets unsurprisingly excited, Peter says, hold on, this wasn't us. This was Jesus. He tells that Jewish crowd, this, is, this work is by God, that God of Abraham and Isaac, that God, your God, he did this. And he did this through Jesus, the Jesus you crucified a couple of months ago. This Jesus, I'm supposed to press buttons here. Um, This Jesus who died was executed and who rose again. And the crowd gets pretty excited and the Jewish authorities start to go, "Uh uh-oh, we have a bit of a problem here. So, when, actually I'm just going to skip that guy there, there we go. (laughs) When Peter tells the story, he connects the the Jewish people to the history, 
You are the heirs of the prophets and of the covenant God made with your fathers. And he has some real grace in the telling. Because if you think about it, those people in Jerusalem hanging out in the temple, two months before, there's a decent chance some of those people were screaming for Jesus' death and calling for Barabbas to be released. Those would have potentially been the same people. So, Paul did, or Peter does something really gracious here. In 317, he says, I know that you acted in ignorance. I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. He's echoing Jesus, of course. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he has grace in the telling. And that's really important that we can, we can look back on history, that we can be truthful about what happened, but also that we can be gracious about what happened. Um, that we are to, to confess our own sins and then we're to accept forgiveness, that we're to move forward. Peter also had an excellent history teacher. Uh, if you remember the road to Emmaus after Jesus was risen from the dead, uh, and they're walking along uh, and they, can't, they don't recognize Jesus, but uh, he tells them how the law and the prophets and all of the history culminates in his coming and his dying and resurrection. So Peter had learned to, to place Jesus in, in that, that this was God's mission. He was up to something. Um, So, the next day, Peter and John are are hauled before the Sanhedrin, the the Jewish council. So, there's a couple of names here, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas uh, is Caiaphas' father-in-law, and they've been kind of controlling things on the Jewish council for a while. Now, the Jewish council has a really difficult job to do, because they are essentially the intermediary between Rome and the Jewish people. So the deal with Rome uh, is that the Jewish people get to continue practicing their religion, which was kind of unusual in the whole whole Roman system, and the Jewish authorities get to stay in charge as long as everything's under control. If things get out of control, then Rome will step in, and it won't be pretty. So these leaders have this really difficult responsibility to keep control. Plus, they probably kind of like being an authority because there were some perks that went with that. So there was some self-interest there too. But they're also in this position. And Caiaphas was the one who in um, John eleven fifty, said, he makes this interesting pronouncement. Uh, he, sorry, the next thing I should tell you before we get to that actually uh, is that Caiaphas was, and Annas and Caiaphas were the ones who, who had started uh, the condemnation of Jesus. They were the first authorities to whom Jesus was sent before he sent on to Pilate and Herod. Um, So they'd met him. And now his followers are healing people, and there's some strange stuff going on. When Caiaphas condemned Jesus to death, he said that it's better for one man to die for the nation um, than to have the whole nation destroyed. And he was saying this really politically, like, here's this one Jewish guy that we should kill because uh, he's stirring up trouble, so let's protect us from the Romans. But, of course, he's also unwittingly giving a prophecy and uh, speaking about Jesus' entire mission. He just didn't really know it. So by what power? Who did this? That's a really dangerous question because we have told a lot of people that we're doing things in Jesus' name that were really terrible. 
you know, everything from the residential schools to the crusades to stuff that goes on in families. Uh, things have been done in the name of Jesus that were counter to the mission of Jesus, to loving God and loving your neighbor. Um, so it's a really scary question to kind of point to something and say, God did that. Um, but we know the character of God. We know that he's good. We know that he heals. Uh, we know that he's gracious. We know that he loves us. So we have some parameters against which to test these claims, right? So this high priest, who was, after all, a priest, he, he recognizes uh, that there's something of the, div- the divine in this. There's a healing that's happened. He asks Peter, and, and they point out that they're unschooled. These are common men. Um, ask Peter, how did you do this? By what power? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness, which is a nice way to put it, an act of kindness, shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So now the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, they have two problems. And the first problem is a problem of authority. Like I said, 5,000 new followers. Uh, There's clearly a stir going on here. But there's a theological threat, too. And the threat is particularly to the people who call themselves the Sadducees. Jesus, during his ministry, had been fairly critical of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. The Sadducees had a particular tenet of belief, though. Uh, They felt that uh, resurrection was impossible. So if you were a Jewish leader back in Jesus' time, you were dealing with the Old Testament, and there's very little reference to what happens after you die in the Old Testament. Um, There's a few vague references to the idea of an eternal soul. And then there's one verse in Daniel that says that... um, all right, we'll read it to you. Daniel 12, 2. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. By the time of Jesus' ministry, uh, most Jewish people believed in some form of an afterlife, but um, N.T. Wright, the scholar, kind of says that, you know, really it was mostly the first idea, the idea that there's some element of us that keeps on going, but that there's kind of a holding place, a waiting place. And then there's, there were some who started to talk about a resurrection, a new life. And the Sadducees were against that. And they were against it, a lot of it, because of politics, because of power. Because if you thought that you were going to heaven, then, you know, starting a revolution or something like that was a slightly less scary prospect than if you thought death was the end. So they were a bit concerned about, you know, what might be the ramifications of a whole lot of people thinking they were going to heaven. Um, which is worth thinking about, but there you go. Um, So the idea of resurrection is also connected in the Old Testament to messianic promises. But what's interesting about the Sadducees is that they had sort of picked up a really kind of small side issue. If you look at the totality of the Old Testament, there's tons of stuff about God's working and about God's character. Um, There's a lot of commandments about how we're supposed to look after the poor and care for orphans and widows and look after each other and stop oppressing people. Um, The question of resurrection was actually only addressed in a couple of little verses. So it's interesting that they had sort of latched on, and maybe, you know, it's instructional, that they had latched onto this one issue 
and maybe set aside some of the other big stuff, which we have been prone to do in our church history. Uh, let's be honest. So Caiaphas, Annas, had uh, been part of the condemnation of Jesus. They're now faced with a couple of guys preaching, talking about Jesus raised from the dead, and a man who has indisputably been healed. And they do something kind of amazing. So Acts 4, 13, 14 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled ordinary men, which was important, they were astonished, and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they first asked Peter and John, could you stop talking about Jesus? Things are getting a little crazy. And Peter says, well, actually, we answer to a higher authority than you, so sorry. Um, and at that point, the politically, sort of administratively smart thing to do would be probably to throw them in jail for a few years so that everyone forgot about them. But they didn't. They let them go. Because they'd been faced with something they could not completely explain or understand. They weren't, they were holding on to who they knew God to be. They weren't giving up the central tenets of their faith. And we have our central tenets of faith fairly well written out in things like the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed about how God created the world and about how Jesus died and rose again to save us and how he sent the Holy Spirit. And those are kind of the non-negotiables. But they were faced with something new here. So we as Christians, we have encountered the truth. We know the truth. We know the grace of God. That's why we believe. But can any one of us claim to know the whole grace of God? The whole truth of God? The whole goodness of God? None of us can hold all of that. So we depend on each other. And when we're faced with a new thing that that fits with our knowledge of who God is, but is maybe something we hadn't thought about. Well, maybe we need to do what the priest did. Maybe we need to be ready to hear, to at least wait and watch and see what God will do next, rather than to close doors and lock things up. So they did. They waited and, the wa and they watched. And history went onward. And as a church, you know, we've learned to do this. There wouldn't have been a Reformation 500 years ago if those back who heard Luther's words and others hadn't kind of said, uh, okay, maybe we need a little course correction here. It's something that, by the grace of God, the church has done a few times. Um, and again, we're not giving up the central tenets. We're not giving up who God is and who we know him to be. We're just maybe looking for something a bit further along the horizon. So to finish up, um, Moses. The book of Deuteron Deuteronomy is all about Moses looking back on his life. He's going to be able to look into the promised land, but because of some stuff that he did, he doesn't get to go into the promised land himself. And Deuteronomy is about him remembering. It's about him remembering his life, the burning bush, and the snake that turned into a stick and then back into a stake, or was it the other way around? and the snake that he held up to prevent the plague of snakes, which was, um, there's a lot of snakes, 
Um, sorry, Heather. Um, <laughs> Heather just skips all those bits. He was remembering the plagues in the first Passover and the escape from Egypt and the parting of the Red Sea. And he was remembering being in the desert and that uh, while things were pretty bleak, God was there with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. He was present nonetheless. And the giving of the law and the promises that God made on his holy mountain. So he looks back and he remembers and he traces the thread of God's work through history. And at the end of his life, he's not going to the promised land. It's not about him anymore. It's about what God's doing. It's not about his generation. It's about what God's doing. And God has a plan, and he hasn't forgotten Moses. Because we do get to see Moses again, right? He shows up at the transfiguration. God is gracious and kind and compassionate, and he loves Moses. So I think we have our stories and our histories, and I think that in addition to the biblical stories and our own personal experiences, we also have people towards whom we can look. We have the saints. I'm going to say small s saints here. Um, And Frederick Buchner has this wonderful definition of a saint. So I think there's, there's kind of the two kinds. There's the one kind of saint that's the really obvious one, like, yeah, that's a saint. You know, I think about someone like Jesse, uh, Jesse Begbie, and you kind of go, that's a, you know, that's a pretty easy call. Um, and then you can think about the people who are maybe a little bit more prickly. They're the ones that, you know, wear hair shirts and say strange things, but they're still glowing with God's love. So Buchner writes, and he makes a reference to Graham Greene's book, The Power and the Glory, and the, the saint who, or sorry, the, the priest who dies at the end of it very unsaintly priest. To be a saint is to be human because we were created human. To be a saint is to live with courage and restraint, as Green's alcoholic priest says, but but it is more than that. To be a saint is to live not with the hands clenched to grasp, to strike, to hold tight to a life that is always slipping away the more tightly we hold it, but it is to live with the hands stretched out both to give and to receive with gladness. To be a saint is to work and weep for the broken and suffering of the world, but it is also to be strangely light of heart in the knowledge that there is something greater than the world that mends and renews. Maybe more than anything else, to be a saint is to know joy, not happiness that comes and goes with the moments that occasion it, but joy that is always there, like an underground spring, no matter how dark and terrible the night. To be a saint is to be a little out of one's mind, which is a very good thing to be a little out of from time to time. It is to live a life that is always giving itself away and yet is always full. So I know that you each have people and places that you think of uh, where you have seen God's fingerprints. We're going up to Anvil on Saturday, and many of us have seen God's work there. Um, But not just there. In Sutherland, um, in our history here, uh, maybe people in your family, I some of you uh, met my grandmother, and she's one to whom I look as a, uh, someone who shone with God's light. Um, I, I'm, I'm getting old, so when we go to Anvil on Saturday, this will be the first time that one of the children of one of my own campers will actually be coming to camp. But I can see God's history in that. I can see God's working, his faithfulness, that this girl that I knew as a teenager is now a mom, and her kids are coming to know Jesus as well. And sometimes we're reminded in in little things. Um, Okay, here's where I'm going to offend you, some of you. So this is what you can talk about later when you're offended. Um, 
you remember a few, maybe two months ago, Jim Galpin was doing his piano thing, which he does beautifully, and uh, he, he sang that Andre Crouch song, which I think was from like the late 60s or early 70s, and I thought it was awful. And not Jim's playing of it, the song, it was painful. But then I looked around, and some of the young people may have been snickering a little, but I looked around and I saw some of the people that I really look up to here, and they had their eyes closed, and they were singing that song, not because the song was great, I hope, I think better of you than that, but because the song reminds them of a time in their life when they knew the presence and power of God. And those things matter. There are, there are reminders that carry us into the next step. Did anyone watch uh, or listen to uh, President Obama's speech on Nelson Mandela's 100th birthday that he gave? Anyone? You can put your hands up. This looks like school. Okay, good. Okay, a few. So if you didn't, you have homework. It will take an hour, and it is worth it. Uh, Obama, it's a, it's a secular speech for a multi-faith audience, but he goes through and traces the changes that happened during the 100 years since Nelson Mandela was born. And he talks about the growth of democracy and civil rights and equality, and then he also talks about the resurgence of populism and xenophobia and um, some of the scarier stuff. And he talks about the impacts of globalization and good and bad, and he looks at our big world, and it reminded me so much of Moses talking in Deuteronomy about all the things that had happened. Um, Also, he used full sentences, which I found a little refreshing. So... Um, it's really worth your time. He has this line at the end, and, and you know, this is the context of South Africa, and, and I, I don't mean to make a comparison of our, certainly our own experience in North Van to, to theirs, but uh, he says, we have to resist cynicism because we've been through darker times. We've been in lower valleys and deeper valleys. He's hearkening to the past, to you know, in, in his sort of secular framing of it, that things got better, that things, there were people. When I teach history, I'm not just teaching about all of the terrible stuff. You know, I have to teach about the Holocaust and the horrors of it. But I will also teach about the people who resisted and rescued and remembered. Um, because those stories are so important that we hold those as well. So we need to ask God to open our eyes to the truth of what he's done. And as we go forward, we know that he's with us. He gives us these places and these times and these stories so that we can know him. And I think that each of us is to spend our lives trying to know more of who God is. But he is so vast and so good and so ungraspable that we have to help each other. And we have to say to one another, do you remember when Jesus said this? Do you remember what God is like? Or do you remember that time when we had that glimpse of him? Because Jesus has been with us and he promised to stay with us even unto the end of the age.